So, if love is the answer, what is the question? Well, one of the questions that occurs to me is, what the heck makes us fall in love? What the heck is the purpose of love? What's the basis for us giving over some of ourselves to others? So, first, maybe to find out the question, as if this were a Jeopardy program, you might want to know, well, what is love? And so I've asked our uh, temporary ushers, when they took your contributions, to give you something back, a piece of paper. And I would ask those of us who have a piece of paper in your hand, if you would read after I give you a number to start with. And I understand some people that we have a couple of numbers left over, so I'll read those. Part of this is because I'm still recovering my voice after a couple of weeks of cold. Thanks to our son, son-in-law, Winston, I uh, was referred to uh, our family physician who has given me some, some nice drugs, but they were late coming. And uh, prednisone may take another day or two to really become effective. So you, when you read, that'll save my reading. So I'd ask someone who has number one to read uh, something about love. Because this is in response to the first Corinthians 13 verses, which say in very antiquated language, they sum up a lot of things that, uh, that are often included in wedding ceremonies. But this is uh, some easier words. They're, they're somewhat longer, but they list in more contemporary language some of the things about what love can be. So who's got number one? Natalie. That's a wonderful thing that you're doing for your family, taking care of your mother and father as they decline. Number two. Number three. Love is resisting opportunities to create moments of conflict that can come from pointing out and responding to relatively minor elements. Number four. Love is being honest in the first time. I hope you're really pondering these, not just the ones you're holding, but each of them as they are read. Number five. Love is more committed to mutual understanding than we are to women. Number six. Love is admitting our own flaws, weakness, and failure, and resisting the reflex of Number seven. Love is being willing when confronted to examine our own heart rather than becoming defensive. Number eight. Love is making a daily commitment to grow in maturity and patience. Love is making a daily commitment to grow in maturity and patience. Number nine, love is always looking for concrete and specific ways to overcome negativity and conflict with positive words and actions. Number 10, 
Love is being attentive to others' physical, emotional, and spiritual needs to lighten their burdens, support their efforts, and offer encouragement. So I'm a loving minister. I have to do that all the time because that's my job, too. Number 11, love is being willing to discuss, to examine, and to understand any relational problems appropriately, staying on task to find a mutually agreeable strategy of response to whatever that problem might be. Number 12. Love is asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness for that. Sometimes that's pretty tough. Number 13, lucky one. Love is being faithful, confident, That's why we make marriage contracts. We are exchanging promises. And if we don't live up to those promises, the marriage is shot. But it's also true outside of marriage, in other relationships, being faithful to promises made and true to our word. Number 14. Wow. Some of us are having a lot of difficulty with that one right now. Finding love in our hearts for people and who, with whom we disagree profoundly. Number 15. Number 16. So. That's really about a reciprocal relationship. Number 17. A lot of us run out of time. A lot of us run out of energy. And we make more time. It comes out of us. So in some sense, we may feel impoverished, but we must be refueled by relationship. Number 18. Love is doing all we can to promote fairness, functional understanding, and active love in all your relationships. Mm -hmm. Anybody got 19? Down there. Well, very powerful. Number 20. Number 21. Sometimes you can't take turns. Sometimes you're in deficit all the time. But if you can find ways to give back, it's very reinforcing to the balance that you would like to have. Number 22. Mm -hmm. Number 23. Love is somehow finding the energy to get 
others' needs, even when we are busy with others. I know moms do that all the time. And it's it's tough. Anybody got 24? Maybe that's the key to all of this. Admitting that perfection is impossible in ourselves as well as an imaginary construct for everyone else. Well, what makes us fall in love? Some biochemists say it's in our chemistry. They don't call a drug for nothing, one article says. When we fall for someone romantically or platonically, our brains are releasing a cocktail of chemicals, creating feelings of pleasure, trust, closeness, and comfort. That complex organ inside our head is hardwired to want intimate relationships at all costs, a response that has been crucial to the survival of our species, not just because of procreation, but because of attachment, affinity that keeps us in defensible families or tribal units or nations. We have to have affinity groups. And here's what some of the chemists say happen in our brain at the six stages of relationship formation. Not restricted to what we call romantic love, but in any relationship involving mutual trust and bonding. We can sense and recognize similar effects with a trusted intimate friend, an animal companion, or with romantic partners. First is attraction. If you develop a crush on someone, every time you think about that person or that pet or that associate in your, in your uh, work life, you can feel good, feel better because you're in relationship. What's happening? Well, these chemists say the neurons in your brain release dopamine, a feel-good hormone associated with euphoria or addiction. And because your brain wants you to keep pursuing this feeling, it fires off more dopamine every time you think about that person. And then you move to early affinity building the relationship. If you can notice how when you really like someone, you can get excited before you are going to meet with them. Maybe your palms sweat or your heart goes faster and you can feel the adrenaline surging through your body. Well, that's because it is. And especially in the early phases of relationship, your brain sends a signal to your adrenal gland on top of the kidneys to pump out the chemicals of adrenaline, epinephrine, and norepinephrine, which gives you that rush of excitement, anticipation. That norepinephrine apparently is especially key. Like dopamine, it makes us feel good, but it also makes us feel somewhat obsessed. It's our brain's way of saying, keep going, I want more. And then when you really are linked in that relationship, when you're bonded, suddenly you want to be around that person every minute of every day. Why? Some studies have shown that the same part of your brain that activates when you're addicted to cocaine activates when you're in a positive relationship. It's the limbic reward feedback system. Basically, your brain decides that this relationship is essential and wants more. From an evolutionary standpoint, this response developed to ensure our survival as relational beings. Do you know the drive to form relationships is stronger than the sex drive? 
During this phase, the limbic system continues to release dopamine, which acts as a feel-good electrical current and keeps you craving that person you already like. When the object of your fascination is not around, you feel like you're in withdrawal. It motivates you to find ways to see them again. As with any drug, however, the high has diminishing returns, which is why the rush then weakens, unless there's mutual attachment, which is reinforced. Then in the first phases of attachment, we find ourselves ignoring the red flags that our friends can see clearly. That's because while other parts of the limbic reward system are lighting up like a Christmas tree in the functional MRIs, the amygdala, the deepest part of our brain that, def that defends us from risk, decides to shut down and, according to the brain scans, takes our good judgment with it. The amygdala is a set of neurons in the temporal lobe playing a big role in how we react to stimuli. It's key to making good judgment calls, recognizing dangerous situations, and can often tell us when someone's lying to us. It's that intuitive suspicion that can come around. When people are attracted to each other, though, the amygdala sometimes takes a little nap, which clouds judgment and causes us to see others through what effectively are rose-colored glasses. But if we continue in relationship while our amygdala is asleep, we might experience positive outcomes and our brains start to release another set of hormones, including oxytocin, which is nicknamed the love hormone. This is a neuropeptide, I understand, which is released into our brains during a times of affirmation or intimacy. Maybe, I assume, when we stroke our cats and hear them purr, or when we see our dog's tail wag when they are greeting us at the door. Studies have shown that oxyto oxytocin is key to fostering trust and commitment. Unlike the quick high of dopamine, though, oxytocin is relatively subtle and sticks around longer, leading to deeper attachment. And if we get to that deeper attachment level over time, the superficial relationship is surpassed by something which is more, more permanent. When people have been committed to pets or other people for years, their brains and scans can show increased activity in an area of the brain which is rich with oxytocin and other receptors, chemicals associated with monogamy and deep attachment, which explains why it might light up on those functional MRIs when we experience long-term friendships and attachments. But there's more to it in the chemistry, and I have to disclaim that my son-in-law, who is a physician, did not review my work here, so I'm taking it from popular stuff that I found on the Internet. I have to admit, it's not been, it's not been peer-reviewed. Um, the hormone oxytocin, although it's often thought of as a love drug, I found a Scientific American article that says it's linked with other kinds of emotions, not just trust, empathy, and generosity. Scientists are now finding that the hormone has a dark side. It can also promote ethnocentrism, fueling xenophobia, prejudice, racism, and violence. Because it makes us feel that those who are outside our intimacy circle are, in fact, threats. Past studies have shown that oxytocin 
does foster social feelings between mates or between mother and child. And that explains why the cuddle chemical might also be linked with those positive social behaviors. But social feelings are not always positive social feelings. A University of Amsterdam study, which was reviewed in, so in Scientific American, says that because of the identification with intimate folks with whom we are already familiar, it can become um, social relationships that are, uh, are from the outside are seen as threats. In five experiments, almost 300 male Dutch volunteers inhaled a spray which contained either oxytocin or a placebo. The experimenters then tested those people's response to identities in different contexts. The net results of those experiments showed us that oxytocin makes people prefer their own group over other groups and thus apparently sets the stage for both prejudice and other forms of social discrimination. Recent classes of theories explaining the role of oxytocin in social behavior have focused only on pro-social, positive behaviors, such as trust and generosity. But oxytocin is also involved in maternal aggression and territoriality. Oxytocin may provoke a wider range of emotions and behaviors related to social behavior and parenting, such as trusting collaborators, feeling love and compassion, but also attacking potential intruders and competing with rivals. I guess we can see the analogs in that when dogs protect their puppies or cats protect their kittens or wolves protect their cubs. That is an oxytocin reaction, I would, I would uh, extrapolate from this kind of study. So some say we might be hardwired for prejudice. One social neuroscientist at Princeton says, you have to remember that groups are defined socially and culturally and biologically. They can change over time based on short-term context and long-term history. So people who are discouraged about the state of the world, as Jerry expressed earlier, and see the intergroup conflict, it doesn't mean prejudice is absolutely inevitable. The key is how you define your, your group, and we know that can be changeable. There may be specific situation in which oxytocin motivates hate for outgroups. And this researcher asked the, for more studies. They said we should also investigate the effects of oxytocin, not just in males, but in females. Well, I think anybody who's seen a mama bear defend her cub would see that there might be a lot to that. It could be that if an outgroup is the only life preserver one has, and if, if one a person is under personal threat, you would see attachment. In other words, the family circle would grow to include the person who would have been on the outgroup. For example, after 9-11, a lot of people in the United States commented, commented that a lot of racial tensions temporarily took a back seat, except for people who appeared to be a threat because they looked like they were Arab or Muslim. Those people became permanent outgroup because of the perception of threat. Clearly, our hormones are responsible for our positive social relationships. And so the bonding we feel toward special people or animal companions or even toward institutional or national identities may be like the Dr. Jekyll side of our Mr. Hyde tendency 
to escalate our protective emotional response to perceived threats against those to whom we feel the closest bonds. In other words, if we sense that there's a threat against those we hold closest, then we will react defensively. Common sense. But we, of course, usually choose to take all the risks associated with love, the costs of relationship, the pain of possible or even you know, unavoidable loss, which can be amplified by special circumstances. And clearly, politicians must work on our yearning for affinity relationships more or less successively, successfully. If they are able to get past our amygdala defenses of rational evaluation, we are vulnerable to their non-rational appeals to our autonomic responses. We each have a particular mix of openings, which I discussed several months ago, the psychology of the six basic pairs of values that can be, can be prioritized in our, in our personal psychology. These mix, this mix of openings which can be exploited through appeal to our particular balance of personality variables, whether those are our preference for policies of justice and equality or our inner need for safety and protection. To some degree, our response to effective manipulation of those openings is instinctive that chemistry stuff. And this is often demonstrated by polling after elections, which show that many voters are voting for candidates who actually hold policy positions explicitly opposite to their own, but those in favor of those who have created an artificial sense of shared identity with those voters. When our hormones are repetitively triggered, perceptions of affinity can clearly overrule our rational selves. So even if we understand intellectually what is happening inside our bodies when we achieve affinity or love and the reactions of hate and defensive aggression, which may arise when those relationships are threatened, so what? I would ask how we might choose to transcend our brain chemistry reflexes to elevate our response to those who are not inside the circle of our affinity relationships. And I think the answer to that question, if love is the answer, the question is how we can transcend the bounds of love to avoid the hate, which is the other side of that same coin. And I think the question is how do we engender and build a sense of compassion toward those we are having a hard time loving. And I think that word compassion we have found is from Latin roots, which means suffering or feeling with another. Compassion is related in origin, form, and meaning to at least one meaning of the English word patient. The patient is one who suffers. Compassion in modern usage now implies that the emotional capacities of empathy and sympathy are, can be constructed as a part of what we might see as a larger love for all humanity. Compassion becomes the underlying basis for our sense of being connected to society as a whole. Without compassion, why would we care about the welfare of people we don't know, that we can't see, that we don't experience in our daily lives? 
And so beyond any sense of empathy or understanding, compassion makes us want to relieve what we perceive as someone else's suffering, someone who's not in our affinity group. Compassion is often the key component in what we might call social altruism. It is clear in all the major religions that compassion is among the greatest of virtues, of being aware of the needs and feelings of others and being internally motivated to address those needs in constructive ways, whether they are in our immediate affinity group or not. Compassion is what binds communities together to make them both practical and meaningful in a philosophical and religious sense. What could it be other than compassion, which would inspire humans to look out for their fellow humans who were not in their immediate affinity groups? We could say it's enlightened self-interest but or and not altruism or compassion. We could say that recognition is that we must have recognition that no person is an island, that whatever affects one of us affects us all in some way that we are part of an interdependent web of all existence and own that in ourselves. But that selfishness usually manifests in only limited ways. On a very primitive level, we might be interested in taking care of old people who live alone, the unemployed, widows and orphans among us in our own towns, because if we don't address their needs, they may be forced to commit crimes to survive that we may be affected or become their victims. But what about those people we can't see and who are quite unlikely come to come to our doors? Why, for example, would we care about victims of earthquakes in Oklahoma or floods and hurricanes and tornadoes in New Orleans? What does it matter to me that there are people who are starving or suffering from cholera or malaria or Ebola or Zika as long as they stay away from here? How can I accept those who disagree with my assessment of local or national priorities and policies? They're in my outgroup. How can we be in dialogue? Why should we care about each other? It must be about our human quality that we can develop consciously for compassion. At root, we know deep inside ourselves that it is often only an accident of birth and location that those people are suffering and not us. We are not primitives unless we are rare creatures who are sociopathic, people who have no compassion, who cannot feel others' pain. As a rule, humans, especially people who are in this room right now, are passionate, especially the one in the front row. We do love and we love deeply. When people are pets or institutions we love and care for are threatened. We want to defend them, and we can fall into reactions of hate automatically. But we must try to find the understanding and strength within ourselves to deny the hormonal pleasure of hating. We must learn how to reframe our responses to become compassionate, even and especially to those who see the world differently than we do. Because that is the only way that we may ultimately have our own needs addressed by finding compassionate ways to address the needs and priorities of others. And perhaps that is the key to our full humanity. Learning compassion. 
I would ask you to join with me now in a little compassion meditation exercise. I would ask you to come to some sense of ease in your physical position. And gently think of someone that you have had difficulty with. And then quietly contemplate with me these words. Just like me, this person is trying to find happiness. Just like me, this person is trying to avoid suffering. Just like me, this person has known sadness. Just like me, this person has known loneliness. Just like me, this person has known despair. Just like me, this person is seeking to fulfill basic needs. Just like me, this person is learning about life. May I find compassion for myself and for this person in our pain, in our imperfection, in our conflicts, in our striving to be whole. If we can learn to have compassion for our strange neighbor and to love the stranger, we will have built the potential for loving relationship. For in the eyes of the stranger, if we look deeply enough, we can find the mirror of our own souls. If you can give love, if you can find compassion, you may find that you can harvest the greatest gift of all, which is love. Blessed be. Amen.